Hello everyone, welcome to the Steve Hilton Show. You're going to be really well informed um, after the end of today's episode, I promise you, because we've got some very smart people who are real experts in a bunch of different issues that are so important to us. Uh, first up, we've got Wayne Weingart. He's from the Pacific Research Institute. He's going to take us through some of the details of the uh, homelessness crisis, why it's got so bad, and why nothing that's being proposed by the Democrats is going to make any real difference. But also we got into a really interesting conversation about economic policy in California, particularly the tax system and how skewed that is in all sorts of destructive ways and what he would do differently as a kind of expert in these things. He kind of he, he tells us about some ideas for reforming California's tax system that are really interesting. Um, and then after him, we've got Congressman John Duarte from the Central Valley in California. Um, and he's just so great. I know you're going to really enjoy meeting him. It was the first time I met him. He knows so much about a massive issue for us, which is water, a massive issue for us right across the state. Right now, it's a huge uh, um, drama because we've got all this snowmelt in the Sierras. And because of the legacy of mismanagement of our water system right across the state that, that the congressman really explains to us in, in very great detail, we could have catastrophic flooding. Um, affecting communities directly in the Central Valley, but also our farm production, which affects us all, and it could have a nationwide, even a global impact. And so he explains exactly how we got to this precarious position with this terribly mismanaged water system in California and what he thinks we need to do to change it. So fascinating conversations. I know you'll enjoy them. First up, here's Wayne Weingarten. Great to see you, Wayne. So your argument in this piece is that the um, uh, the prospects for success, let's put it that way, of Gavin Newsom's latest homelessness um, initiative, announcement, whatever you want to call it, are not that bright based on past performance. Um, tell us tell us about um, all of that in more detail. Well, we've been spending uh, billions of dollars over many years uh, on, on the different homeless programs, and they're all based on the same uh, premise, right? And it's what's called housing first. And yeah. the idea makes, you know, it, it makes sense, right? The best platform to help someone is a stable, secure housing situation. So the first priority is to get them into a, a home. Uh, the problem is that it's prioritizing kind of that physical, putting someone in a home, not the underlying causes that drove the problem in the first place. It kind of led them to the streets. And what you see, we've been doing this for years, since at least 2016. And as we spend more and more money on the kind of housing first inspired programs, which is exactly what the governor uh, is continuing to do, we see the number of homeless people in the state continue to rise. So if you're spending yeah. more and more money and the problem is getting worse, you, it, perhaps it's time to take a step back and say, wait a second, maybe we need a different approach. Well, is there something different about it? And as I understand it, the, one of the key drivers of the you know the, the the phenomenon that you're describing is it was SB thirteen eighty, which is the housing first legislation, which, right. which specifically says you can't use state money on any service program that requires abstinence or sobriety, and therefore you don't deal with the underlying issue for so many of the people who are unfortunately homeless, which is that they're addicted to drugs of one kind or another, often through as it were no fault of their own because they're the targets of of drug dealers who prey on them when once they're homeless on the streets, and so. That and the mental health aspect of that, and they're obviously closely connected, but isn't it the case that with this, at least they're nodding in the direction of that? Like with some things I've heard recently from Newsom, which is, for example, the what the care courts thing, uh -huh. um, and there's the 
move around mental health, which right. I couldn't quite follow. I mean, aren't they sort of getting the point a little bit? I think so, yes. Now, the care course things are, I think, a definite step in the right direction. It's something uh, that we've been advocating for, which are homeless courts, I think are a very important part of the pro uh, of solving the problem because when you have somebody who's suffering with mental illness or who's struggling with uh, addiction issues, often they're not going to be able to make rational decisions. And and, and it's, it's a very difficult issue because you're forcibly putting somebody into a program. I mean, so there's, there, there's certainly liberty issues and things that we need to be concerned about. At the same time, when you have somebody living on the streets who is being destructive to themselves, destructive to the people who live there, destructive to kind of the broader kind of community, you know, we, we need to actually help them. And if they're not willing to, then, you know, we have to ask ourselves those, those difficult decisions. So expanding those courts, I think, is a great idea. Uh, it's something very important that we need to do, uh, but that's a small part of what we're doing. We're still spending more and more money on. Uh, there's this one project, if I could see, down in Los Angeles, where mm -hmm. uh, there there are uh, buildings that have been built, right? And they were actually originally intended for. It seems like younger people. If you look at the, the websites where they talk mm -hmm. about a rooftop a barbecue pit overlooks the Hollywood sign and all the different mm -hmm. amenities, well, we're purchasing that for for homeless housing. Uh, at $560,000 a unit. Well, that, it, I, honestly, I have to tell you, that is low compared to some of the numbers you, it, you hear. It is, but it's still astonishing. It's still an incredible waste of resources when you think about the enormity of the problem. Uh, you know, I can't do this arithmetic in my head, but 560,000 times the 170,000 homeless is a very big number. Well, I mean, of course, and they, and but we've had many big numbers spent. I mean, I think that the there's so many facets to it. But I mean, another one is the, is the, you know, the the the, the reluctance, the inability, reluctance, whatever you want to call it, to operate at both ends of it. So yeah, you've got the need to provide services to help right. people uh, get their life back on track, whether that's to do with the mental health or the addiction or the combination of the two, as well mm -hmm. as the physical aspects of being able to be in a secure and stable place so that you can kind of get it together and eventually hopefully find work and so on. There's that, there's that end of it, the service provision, but there's also the, 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 the kind of, you know, I don't know whether we, it would be called upstream or downstream uh, part of it, whether that analogy works, but the fact that you just shouldn't be on the streets, that that actually shouldn't be allowed. You should enforce, this is what we heard from the mayor of Coronado a few episodes ago. You know, he enforces the code. The right. city code, which the ordinance, whatever you want to, which which, which is that no, you can't have uh, tent encampments on the streets. That is Ill illegal. It's against the law, and we're going to enforce the law. Right, and that's incredible. We, we need both carrots and sticks, and we need to say there is no camping. Now there is obviously the Boise decision, which makes that yes. more difficult. But we still we need to we need to enforce that. You can't have a thriving community when you have tents and all of the other kind of and silly things that happen on the streets, in public, everywhere, beyond just the, the public health danger. I mean, this is, it's mm. unacceptable, and we have to put our foot down and say this, you do not have a right to set up an encampment well, that's right. on a public street. That's right, and just for those who, who haven't followed some of our previous coverage of this, the Boise decision was, is the Ninth Circuit, isn't it? Um, yes. And it was a, it basically said, you can't, move you can't enforce the anti-camping ordinance unless you have shelter accommodation available 
And the problem is often that police officers on the street that would be enforcing it has no idea whether or not there's a shelter a bed available. And just the way it gets interpreted, it turns into, okay, we're just not going to enforce it because we can't guarantee that there's a shelter bed uh, and, available. Yes. And furthermore, you have, uh, certainly this is the case in San Francisco, you have activist groups, NGOs that, that I mean, what some people call the homeless industrial complex, um, that actively block attempts to provide shelter because they argue that temporary shelter, the kind of, as the name suggests, you know, like an immediate kind of refuge off the streets, a sort of bed and and so on, but not, you know, in a very basic way, is in, inadequate. And you need a home, like an apartment, like an actual, you know, piece of accommodation and some kind of cheap version of shelter. That's no good. So they block the city from constructing that or providing that. Right. Which is really the analogy is, you know, I, I really deserve to be able to drive faster. And so I need to have access to a Porsche or a Lamborghini and just giving me a car for free, which you would think would be generous enough, isn't isn't sufficient. I need a Porsche. It, it, it's it's a it, it's a non-tenable position because it's unaffordable. When you think about all the other priorities the state has, when you think about the fact that our revenues are crashing right now and so yeah. that the budget hole in Sacramento, we we thought it was 25 billion. And it's going to be a lot more than that. Uh, you, you just can't spend that kind of money um, on this one program and hope to get all all the other priorities of the state done. It's just to waste that much. I mean, it's 10% of problematic. Of the, I mean, I noticed that in L.A., the announcement from Karen Bass, the new mayor, new-ish mayor, um, recently was, was I think she said $1.3 from their budget. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Which one of our previous guests told me that was basically ten percent of the budget. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, for like a hand, hand. I mean, for, I mean, I, I don't know what the exact number is, but I mean, it's a sort of tiny fraction of the population. Right. San Francisco is spending their their what they spend on homelessness is about eighty percent of what the entire Jacksonville and Florida their entire budget, and the cities are about the same size. Yeah, it's an amazing. I, I mean, mean it's, it's, amazing. it's amazing. I mean, you make these comparisons with. I mean, I, I've just spent a lot of time looking at the housing issue and talking to people there. I mean, just, I mean, there's uh, everywhere you look, it is it is worse here by so m many degrees. I mean, if you, I mean, on the on the housing front, you know, the cost of building. I mean, you mentioned five hundred sixty thousand for the for the the homeless thing. I mean, that's why these these partly why the it costs so much is the ridiculous regulatory regime around house building. Whether when you add in the cost of the labor that's put in there by the unions. And then the cost of providing local services, they call it, what do they call it? Um, impact fees. Uh, where And the point is made to me that in other states, you know, if you want to build housing, that's seen as a positive thing. And so they, they will put in, the local government or state or county, whatever, will put in infrastructure, schools. They go, great, and you build the houses. We welcome that. We, we need more housing. Here's the opposite. So, yeah. Oh, if you come in with housing, that's a burden on us. That That's an impact on us. So you're going to have to pay the costs of the it's, impact. I mean, it's just so crazy. And that, so you end up with a house, you know, be this exact same house costing four or five times as much to build. Just and, across and the board. And taking twice as long, too. I'm sorry? And taking twice as long, too. Exactly, exactly. It is so unbelievable. I know that you have a lot of expertise in many, in many areas. You work in health policy and economics. Um, let's start with, I mean, I'd, I'd like to sort of get into that as well, if I may. I mean, what, what the, the can I ask your thoughts on the budget? Because one, one of these things 
one of the things that we say a lot, uh, and, and, and in a kind of headline way, and I'd love to know your d deeper thoughts on it, is that one of the reasons that we have this instability in the budget is that, is that it's so skewed towards, despite all the rhetoric about the rich paying their fair share, actually it is very, the California revenues are very skewed in favor of the, the, the higher earners. I think it's something like 50% um, of the revenue comes from the top 1% of earners. And a lot of their money comes from capital gains and the stock market and so on. So we're very, the revenues of the state are very dependent on cyclical things like the stock market and, and stock prices. And therefore, you get these lurches of revenue that lead to this very um, kind of chaotic fiscal situation. Is, is, that, is that how you see it? You, you summed it up perfectly. If you go back, you can go back to 1970s, the late 70s, because we've had that progressive tax structure mm -hmm. for that long. We've actually made it so much more progressive, right? You have the, the millionaire surcharge, it was 13.3% tax, and good, we're sticking it to the rich, right? <laughs> the problem is, and this is what we're kind of going on that downside of the roller coaster, mm -hmm. which what, the, what happens is in the good times, all of that progressive taxation, when you combine it with the capital gains in the stock market, right? If you mm -hmm. look at San Francisco and San Jose, right, Silicon Valley, when this, the stock market is doing well and Silicon Valley is doing well, you have all of these people cashing in, making millions of dollars and paying a lot of money in taxes. And so the revenue is just like that upward surge of the roller coaster. And you're just going up, 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 up. And we spend to that level. And that's the, the, that's the problem. We should be aware that this is a cycle and that when mm -hmm. the revenues are surging in, there will be a, a, a dearth of revenue soon. So you can't spend all that money. But that's mm -hmm. not what we do. What we do is as those revenues go up, the spending matches it. And a lot of that spending is on, like you were talking earlier, the homeless, but all the programs, the, you know, we overcharge everything. So we get all of these unaffordable programs. We expand income support to levels that we really can't afford. Mm -hmm. And then what happens right now? We're at that top of the roller coaster and we're going down the other side. Revenues are crashing. That's why we have a 25, possibly we'll find out soon to be a $30 billion budget hole because- yeah. Stock market is doing poorly. Silicon Valley is not cashing in. So you just don't have that kind of surge, that income, the capital gains that, you know, 50% of our revenues that ha has come crashing down. But the problem is our spending was ratcheted up. So our baseline is yep. based on that surge in revenues. And so you, you get these huge gaps. This, like I said, it goes back to the 70s. If you just looked at the data, it's very clear that if you just, you know, you didn't even change anything, just spent to the averages so that you mm -hmm. built up, you know, enough reserves in the good times that you could, you know, uh, take care of it in the bad times, you would be fine. Now, we have the instituted rainy day fund, right? That, yes. that was just instituted and that is helpful, right? And part of the reason things aren't crashing right now is we do have those rainy day fund resources. The problem is that the, the size of the rainy day fund is, is, too small compared to the budget catastrophe that's coming. Yeah, but also it's t it's sort of tactical rather than structural. It's a kind of sort of one-off thing rather than that you can sort of play around with rather than actually solving the problem. I, right. I'd love to talk to you about both bits of it, right? Let's start with the income, the revenue side. So what If you had a sort of free hand um, and no constraints with the legislature and all the rest of it, how would you design a tax system for California? 
Well, actually, um, I, I wrote a book with Arthur Laffer several years ago. We called Eureka, uh, uh-huh. and it was it came up with a lot of the issues that we we suffer here in California in and our solutions. So our our solution in terms of the tax was very simple: a um, flat tax. So we would get rid of all of the taxes that we currently have, and mm-hmm. we would replace it with two simple flat taxes: one mm-hmm. on income, and one on business net sales. Uh, at the time, I think it was uh, five and a half, six percent uh, would be revenue neutral on a static basis. So you you had a six percent income tax, you had a six percent business net sales tax. That would give you at that time uh, revenue neutral. Uh, those rates may have changed, and perhaps we need to have a, a, a reduction in revenues, or you know whatever the case may be. But that would be my preferred system, uh, where you have just you you. Get rid of all of the complications, right? We have yep. so much uh, little taxes that raise nothing, that creates yep. a lot of compliance issues. You have all sorts of other types of kind of uh, complexities and tax cascading. Get rid of all of that. Simple two flat taxes: one paid on uh, income uh, by individuals, one paid by businesses, and you're done. Right. L- really interesting. Let's go into that. So. Uh, income tax pretty clear what that is um, on well actually it's not that clear to me let's just look at that is it on um, like earnings as like what kind of income that, that I'll, I'll ask both the questions you right. know like um, uh, investment income or just salary etc on the business net um, net sales is, net sales yeah right. that is is that VAT as it's, it's more commonly um, it, known it's, uh, yeah uh, like uh, a sale, is it sales it, tax actually yeah it, it is a transaction tax it, it's a that yes um, Arthur, which we already like have right we have sales. we have sales tax from is that that's on municipal you know local level right it, we, we have no we have a state uh, uh, state sales tax we have a statewide local sales tax that's collected from the state and then we have local sales taxes that are collected directly so would localities. your two flat taxes be be could be supplemented by local taxes if if a locality wanted to do that? Would you outlaw that somehow? To keep no. it simple. I mean, I I think that to have some sort of local control, there's there's value to that. So Ideally, though, you would want that to be an add-on to those two tax systems, so you don't have it, an introduction of a new tax. Okay, and then so just on income, what what kind of income would that cover? The six percent. I would I would I want the broadest possible base so I can get the lowest possible rate. So I would include capital income, wage income across the board. Uh, also, I think from a political perspective, if you were going to exempt capital income, there would be all sorts of, uh, you know, you, it, it's already um, radical enough. Yes. <laughs> Exempting that, you would have a, a lot more so issues. So the big thing missing from that, and I want to understand about this a bit, bit, bit more in a bit more detail, is property taxes. Right. So I've heard the arguments going back to my days working on all this stuff back in the UK when we were in, in the government um, and preparing for government, which is, well, actually, property is a pretty good base for tax because it does reflect income pretty well, not in every case. So it's kind of fair and it's a good base because it's, you know, it's, you can see where it is and it's easy to collect and it's not complicated. Um, so you leave property completely out of it. And also, the, I mean, that, that's very, I was going to say that's kind of disruptive because the property tax income directly funds the schools, doesn't it? So how would that relationship all work out? Right. Well, you get me right now, the property tax, it funds the schools, but the, the money goes from the locality to, to the Sacramento, state. 
and then yeah. Sacramento sends it back out. So yeah. if you were just going to be sending out the income tax revenues, I, I think that would be an easy one to to address. So one, so no change in relation to the schools part. Right. Now, what you could always do, that if you have the local add-on, they could have an add-on that to fund uh, schools or whatever local priorities that, that you would have. So there's but certainly, you, think, you know, a you mechanism. You think that taxi, taxing income is fairer and better than and easier than taxing property? Well, you have to remember, when you're taxing property, right, the property itself, you know, unless it's a commercial property, right, if it's your home, right, it's, it's, it's a tax on your income based on the value of the property that you own. Now, from a tax collector, like you said, there's advantages because in the short term, right, property is not going anywhere, right? It's the, the yes. house is there, you know, in the long term, obviously there's depreciation. So if you move out and the property can devalue till it has no, uh, it ha has no value at all. So in the long term, everything is a fixed or a movable asset. But obviously in the short term, any reasonable uh, period of time that you know that house is there. So I can get your income based mm -hmm. on the value of your house, but ultimately what you're taxing is somebody's income. That's where you get the money to pay for it. Right. Yeah. Yes, I get Yes, of course. That's where the, that's how they pay. So you're assessing it on the basis of the property, but right. it's paid from the income. Fair point. Um, so, uh, I mean, what, 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 what do I want to ask you? It may sound like a completely sort of dumb question. Um, but what, how, what about these states that have no income tax? I mean, how, how do they do it? You know, like we have, is it, te I think, Texas? The many, a number of states have no there's, income there's, Yeah, there's a, nine states, I believe, they don't have an income tax. Right, they Texas, still have schools. Tennessee, they Florida. function. Yep, you know, like, do. how, how yep. do we get there? Well, and, and you could do that, right? I mean, I think income is more interesting based than sales in that, again, sales taxes do come from income, and you have issues of, defining the sales tax base, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, how do you incorporate, um, if I go to a lawyer, right, should that transaction be part of my tax base? Whereas, you know, lawyer services aren't included, but if I go and buy groceries, you know, if it's, some groceries are exempt, it's probably a bad example, but if I go buy a car, I'm paying my taxes on the car, not mm -hmm. necessarily on the legal services. Those right. types of issues are gonna rise with the sales tax base. So you have a narrower base. But the bottom line is the sales tax generally it's a flat tax. Right? It's a flat tax on a 70%, 60% of your income. That part of your income you're spending on the, the mm -hmm. taxable goods and services. So, you know, from that perspective, it's significantly better than the progressive tax system we have here. Mm -hmm. And you're right. You know, uh, Texas, they rely on property taxes, right? So they have property taxes. They have uh, corporate income taxes. Uh, particularly, uh, uh, they have taxes on oil, right? The oil extraction. Oh, in other California, states that make they, it work without us without an income tax, right? But not all, right? Florida doesn't have an income tax, and they don't have oil. So it's you know Washington doesn't have an income tax. So uh, there are states that aren't oil centric that do they don't have an income tax. So it's not a it's not a um, a requisite. What you know what you need to do though is you need to have a controlled amount of spending. Right. Let's move to that side of the ledger. I, exactly. So on the spending front, um, could you just talk about the, the kind of the bits of it that you can control without serious reform? Because as I understand it, you've got a great, a, a larger and larger proportion of the budget being swallowed up by commitments that have been made 
to the unions in terms of collective through collective bargaining on pensions and health care and all these other things that are just sort of eating into the budget. Right. Well, and it's, I think there's a parallel to the, the, the federal as well. And mm -hmm. part of what you have to do is you, you, you have to address that because the, the, the union wages that we have to pay for all of the projects that just ramp up all of the costs, that's what makes so many things unaffordable. We need such a high tax system because we have to overpay for our roads because we have to pay the union wages and all of those other factors that get priced in. So, you know, and can I just give, can I just stop you there? Because yeah, I please. think people need to really understand the scale of that. And to, to, again, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here or, or, or it doesn't translate. But I was just talking to some people in relation to housing. Uh -huh. And there are two, the, the cost of building houses in California compared to ev everywhere else. And so there are two elements to the labor aspect yeah. of it. One is what they call prevailing wage, yeah. which is um, a actually a kind of a, a union wage. That's really what, what what that is, but they call it prevailing wage. And the second bit is skilled and trained, I think, which is that you have to actually employ an actual union member. So one is, one is, you, wherever you employ, they don't have to be a union member, but they have to be paid the union rate. That's prevailing wage. And then the layer on top of that, even even sort of you know tougher, as it were, is skilled and trained, which is you have to actually employ a union member, and and so there are costs associated with that. So I was told that in relation to housing, that alone, those two things. Uh, well, sorry, just the prevailing wage right. part of it adds $300,000 to the cost of a house being built. And that's how you end up with, this, you know, sort of, you know, these costs of like 800000 for building a house, which is why the prices are so high. And you don't have that in other states. So it's a really, really big proportion of, right. the, of the cost. It's not like, oh, people think, well, it's just a little bit of uh, extra wages and we want people to be well paid who work in construction. Yeah, we all agree with that. This is a huge proportion of the cost. And I think the mistake people make when you're saying, oh, we want people to be paid, you know, uh, as high as possible. And of course we do. But the, the problem is when you create that artificial boost, what you end up doing is, in effect, you it, it's a double entry system. If you raise the cost here, well, then it has to if it's if it's artificial, it has to come out on the other side. Maybe yeah. it's prices go up. Maybe somebody else earns less. But there's. Uh, there's no tooth fairy that works in Sacramento, neither does Santa Claus. Just because you mandate that somebody's wages have to be paid here, it, that if there's a fundamental scarcity or, or if the, the value of the job in economic terms isn't mm -hmm. that high, then there's going to be a cost someplace else. And th that's just the reality of it. And so if you close your eyes to it, what you're going to see is there will be unintended consequences. Moving away from housing, just looking at when we're talking about uh, minimum wage for uh, working in, in fast food restaurants or in, mm -hmm. actually fast food is a great example where we're going to increase the wages of fast food workers because we want them to, to earn a higher living. Well, what happens? Now, when you walk into a McDonald's, all you see are the automated uh, machines and you order it yourself. And mm -hmm. so that if they, they can't hire as many people, in fact, the, the cost of capital is so much cheaper relative to labor that they bring in those automated machines. Yeah. And so and also, now... And the, yes, go on. And, and, the, and the tragedy of that is that actually those kinds of jobs are great entry-level jobs for people they're, they're to get you on the ladder. That's exactly what I was going to say. Now you've, you've taken away that opportunity for people to move up the, the ladder and to start at, yes, it's a lower-wage job, by the way, typically held by teenagers, but yeah. it, it, it takes away that opportunity to learn kind of how to work, to gain those skills, and to start moving upward.
But what's interesting about this, I hadn't thought of it this way before, is that the, this labor, this additional labor cost that's put in to the public spending is what re lifts up the public spending and that lifts up the, ta you know, that's why that contributes to the tax increases. Has anyone done an estimate like of, a, of an actual amount that the labor requirements are costing the state in terms of public spending on things like infrastructure and etc. I, I haven't seen it, but I would be shocked if someone hasn't. That'd be I, I will I will go look and tell, let you know. But I'm sure somebody has, because that's a really interesting you know aspect of this conversation. That I just hadn't thought about. Right. Yeah, no, that that's a great question. That's a great question. It's really it's it, I mean, it, but th this is what happens in California. I mean, the more you learn about it, the worse it, it appears. You know, which is just the worse it is, which right. is that the. You know, the incredible complexity and layering on of, of obligations and rules and bureaucracy and requirements and union stuff and this and that. It's just everything is just so it, it just gets bogged down. I mean, it's a miracle to me that the that the state's economy is growing and that, we, you know, we're still up there in terms of whatever it is and that the, the fourth largest economy in the world with all this going on. It's kind of a miracle to me. Yeah, well, you we're, we, we are we're benefiting from all of the past. Right. So that. We, we have San Francisco, we have L.A., we have San Diego, so we have a life sciences, we have fantastic universities, we do have Silicon Valley, so financial centers. So yes. all of that is continuing to push us forward, but we keep putting on more and more headwinds. But what we're beginning to see when you look at the migration patterns now is mm -hmm. that we're beginning to see that that legacy that's been supporting us is beginning to kind of buckle under all of the weight of these uh, of these rules and regulations, the higher costs. Uh, and that's why we've seen what I think is about a half million people have left California. And businesses. Uh, and, yeah, and businesses. And as that continues, that legacy that's been holding us up is going to weaken. And then we're going to start to really reap some unfortunate consequences. It's a really, really serious point. And there's, it's, it's part of this complacency you see uh, you know, from the demo, and I think it's connected to the political monopoly that they've enjoyed. They just not, they don't feel under pressure. They don't feel challenged, so they can sort of throw out all this crazy stuff, um, well, throw, and not worry about the stuff. consequences. Yeah, without, and look at the, this latest proposal where they want to charge utility, right? Your, 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 oh your gosh, utility yes. bill based it, on income. I mean, it's just it's ludicrous. It's it's a, it's the taxing authority that they want to give to the 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 public utility. And then the public utility has to then get your income information, right? Which is terrifying. I know we have talked about this this week on the show. Like, what, what is the plan here? I mean, did, is that what they? I mean, is, has anyone thought that through? I mean, is it the IRS now going to be part of your utility billing system? I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Is that it's, right? Yeah, is that they, the they idea? Could have thought this through. They couldn't have if if because if you think it through, it's it's so ridiculous. Why would you propose it? Well, there, you could say that about a lot of things <laughs> in California, unfortunately. Um, actually, one thing that occurs to me, just thinking about the business exodus, um, I, I sh I'm, forgive me, I'm, I sh what, what is the business taxation regime in California? It's it's not great. I think it's the eighth, our corporate income tax is the eighth or ninth highest in the country. Right. It's about 8.89%, I, I believe, is the corporate income tax rate. But so, remember, lots of small businesses are going to be under the personal income tax. Right. right, they're going to be an LLC or something, and they would pay the um, personal income tax, which could be as high as thirteen three. But you also have it's not just the taxes that drive businesses out. 
a lot of it is the regulations uh, that end up taking up too much of your time. It's the labor costs that they force upon you. Uh, you know, it's it's the quality of life. You can't get people talent to move to cities where I'm going to spend a million and a half for a 1,500 square foot home yeah. that is 50 years old. You, you, I can get a better quality of life if I do high tech in Austin than I do in in, um, in San Jose. Yeah, it's really interesting. So that loss of the congressional seat based on the on the declining population is a real kind of harbinger of of of, of big problems to come, I think. And and they just aren't taking it seriously because there's no I think as I, I'm repeating myself, but there's no there's no real political challenge at this point. And so they feel like, yeah, we can just keep doing this stuff. It's going to be fine. We can rest on our laurels. It's okay. But actually, it's really, I mean, the legacy is a great phrase, you know, you use the legacy is beginning to buckle. I think that's incredibly serious because actually you take for granted this kind of economic success and the, or, the, or the, just the basic process of wealth creation that you can afford all this stuff because we have a thriving economy. The minute that goes, you're in real trouble. Right. And I, I, I think, unfortunately, is it human nature that we have to hit rock bottom before we can kind of pick yeah. ourselves back up, but it, it seems that's really where we're headed, where we have to hit that crisis, yeah. where GDP now is it's stagnant while the rest of the country is growing. Is that right? Actually... I haven't seen that data. Oh, no, no, it, it isn't. I'm, I'm, I'm speculating that, that that's is when that it has what to get, we need to it. see okay. before. Right. Actually, our GDP has been outperforming. So yeah. that's the leg well. It's, as you say, the legacy is very strong. Um, yeah. What about the? Um, can I do a quick sort of um, question on on the going back to the tax proposal? So would your your simplification there, you and Art, um, yeah. take us to you know the, the, the flat tax, the six percent on um, income and and, and sales and that, yeah. yeah, that would that so that that means you get rid of the corporate the current corporate tax? Yep. Yeah. Yes. Well, there Absolutely. you are. Absolutely. So that's attractive. I mean, I, I've always been a huge advocate back in the day when I worked on, on some of this stuff in the UK government of, you know, you need to attract business. I mean, that's the lifeblood, you know, like small, medium and large, because yep. without that, you're not going to generate the wealth to pay for all the things that you want. Um, and so a lower corporate tax rate is not helping the rich. It's helping everyone. Right. Well, and it's something that economists know second nature, but you can convince <laughs> real people that... No corporation pays taxes. When you levy a corporate income tax, yes. either it raises prices so customers pay it, you lower wages so workers pay it, or you lower your profits so the people who own the company are going to pay it. So when you talk yes. about mom and pop shops, that's just your neighbors. When you talk about corporations, you know that's you know owned by you know and that's on the listed on the stock market. Well, that's mostly pension funds. That pay, yes. So if you if you work for a company, you have a pension fund, or I don't know if you work for the government and Calpers is investing in your behalf. When when you have higher corporate income taxes, you're just lowering returns for Calpers, mm -hmm. and so you're you're making public pensioners uh, less financially yeah. secure. But those are the people who pay corporate taxes, not some nebulous corporation. Yeah, exactly. Um, can I, I just? I, I mean. Lots more I'd love to talk to you about. I think we'll have to do that on another show because, well, I'll, I'll ask one more question after this one. Actually, Final question on all this economic stuff. Has anyone uh, tried to advance the tax reform that you're, you, you were advocating? Uh, I don't believe so, no. 
Right. Okay. Uh, they still yeah. think it's impossible in California. Well, clearly in the legislature. But I mean, you could do this through a ballot initiative, couldn't you? You could. You could. Now, one one of the problems, and I'll, I'll be brief about it, that uh, a lot of conservatives are very shy about a VAT. And the reason they don't like the VAT is because it's hidden. And I, I think that's easy to address because we can make it visible. And it's very important to ensure that it is visible. But one of the reasons just in, in the U.S., uh, conservatives and free market types tend to be against the VAT is because it is hidden and it's easy for governments to raise. And they say that's part of the reason. You, how, how did you fund the welfare state in Europe? Well, you did that through the VAT. But something that I guess where I come down is it is a very low cost, efficient tax. Mm. And you can create safeguards in terms of raising it. But we want our tax system to, again, be as efficient as possible and as, as uh, costless as possible in terms of how, you know, raising well, the other, funds. Yeah, but the other criticism just on that is is that from the left more, but also but, from the, you know, mainstream, is that it's, it's um, inequitable, uh, regressive is the word I think is used because it disproportionately, hurt, disproportionately hurts the poorest because the kinds of things that you levy the VAT on make up a higher proportion of the budgets and spending of the poor. Right. That's true. But you also have, in our system, you have an income tax where you're going to pay 6% of a million dollars. That's a lot more money than 6% of $50,000. So, um, you know, you address it that way. But the bottom line is, again, my view, it's much more important to create a high growth economy that raises everyone's yes. income. And so if we focus on that and we continue to make the worse off better, does it really matter what's the progressivity or regressivity kind of complaints about the, the different tax system? I think what we want is how do we encourage broad-based growth mm -hmm. that lifts everybody's boats up, as mm -hmm. John F. Kennedy might yeah, say. Yeah, I, mean, I agree with that. And, and, okay. and that's got to be the ultimate goal. So it, almost as a kind of tease for an, another conversation, which I would love to have, Wayne, um, based on this one. Um, you work on uh, healthcare policy, don't you? Yes. Can you give us a kind of taster of what you think we should, because it's, I mean, you know, the, the healthcare debate in America, it plays out at the national level, it's a big national issue, but it really is run at the state level substantially, isn't it? It is. Well, you have one Medicaid, which is the biggest uh, in, insurer, and that's a joint federal and state program, but it's it's administered by the states. And then you have uh, the, this, the states are going to get involved, obviously, with their own health care issues. And then you have, uh, you know, the state run uh, or, or public hospitals. Um, addressing health care, it's such a complicated issue where I, I like to start is just with the idea of uh, health insurance, because what we call health insurance isn't serving that role. And that kind of, that's like the wedge where so many of the problems we see kind of, or the genesis of so many of the problems that we see is that this employer-sponsored health care, what we call health insurance, is really just a prepaid health care where a third party, usually your employer, gets to decide what, what your health benefits should be, and they negotiate that with a party that they choose, and you're completely locked out of it, and ha there's absolutely no transparency. And so all of this begins to snowball, and like you said, this is a completely 
uh, we could have a whole podcast talking about this, which which would be fantastic. Yes. But that that misalignment of incentives is a big part of the problem yes. where we see waste and uh, and the healthcare system because we we waste so many resources. Think about it. The average family's health insurance is about $21,000. That's just paying your health insurance. That's not talking about your deductible, your co-insurance, your co-payments, uh, when you have to go pay for, 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 uh, for those, when you have to pay for drugs out of your pocket. It doesn't include any of that. I mean, we are spending so much money, but the incentives aren't there to spend it well, uh, and the incentives aren't there to improve the quality of it. And in fact, the, the middlemen of the system, this is especially true when you talk about drug pricing, the middlemen of the system whose incentives are completely misaligned with both the patients and in this case, the, the companies that are, are producing the uh, innovative cures, that uh, it doesn't serve our interests. Mm -hmm. And their goal is just to try to kind of game up the system to maximize their revenues. I mean, something I don't think listeners you know, would be shocked to hear this, but the price, let's take insulin, the price of insulin that manufacturers receive has been going down, has been going down over the last five years, even though the list price of insulin has been going up. Now, why people are upset is if you have a coinsurance, which most people do, you pay your coinsurance on the list price. So you're right. paying more because the list price is going up. The actual price that the manufacturer is receiving is going down, and the difference is going into all of that that uh, opaque middleman. Well, it's, it's such a mess. It's so bureaucratic um, and cra crazy, I think. And that's why I really do want to understand it, and I really mean it. Let's have that conversation because it's one of those things that affects everyone's life right. so directly. It's such a mess. Um, and, um, and, and we're taking the wrong lesson, which is going to make things worse. Okay, well there you are. That is a really good, um, uh, you know, signal for everyone to to, wa to watch out for the next episode that we do together, Wayne, uh, on he healthcare. Let's do a whole one on healthcare. I really want to do that. It's a very important. Fantastic. Um, great to talk to you today. Thank you so much. But thank you so much. Have a great one. All right, and as promised, here is Congressman John Duarte from California's Central Valley. Congressman, I'm so happy to be able to talk to you um, because we were following your race so closely. I was like refreshing the page on the on the, on the website to see, to see what was going on because it was so close and you pulled it off and we were so pleased to see that. Um, I'm, I'm really keen to talk to you, particularly about the water situation because you, as you're real and uh, can really give us great information on that based on where, where you are and, and your knowledge of of everything that's going on with water and and the and the and the weather we've been having and the impact on farming etc we'll get to that in a second but i just want to hear what it was like from you from uh, you know like going through that you know that the that such a close election well it, it was tantalizing no we uh we got in the election late we got in the election the last week of filing i decided i just felt a calling to run because i'm i'm a republican i'm a businessman and a farmer i've never been in elected office before and I looked at it, talked to my wife, Alexandra, and said, you know, I really feel I have to run. I can win this district. I think I can uniquely win this district because I got lots of relationships, lots of history, lots of customers, lots of uh, employees in the district. And this is how we stop socialism, by winning districts like this. And America is going exactly. fast in a very socialist direction. I don't like it. And I'm afraid if I don't try to win this race at this time, 
I'm going to be like a grumpy old turd when I'm 70. And no, I could have done something and didn't do it. You know, at least even if, even if I win or lose, I know I'll have done what I could have done at the time it was there. And so I'd encourage all Americans to take the attitude. And if you can win a district to win an election, participate in government to move the country in the direction you want to move it, whatever your value sets are, do it because it can be exciting and it can be really rewarding. It's been a, a, a honor of a lifetime to be able to come back here to the Capitol after winning it. This is a Biden 11 district. It had a 14% Democrat registration advantage over Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in California Central Valley. It's a farm district full of working families and dry farms and, and quite a lot of strife with inflation and, and drought and now flooding the, the things we've been facing the last last couple of years. Uh, and, and I get to represent it, and I really get to go to the mat. If you see me in the hearings, if you see me here on the Capitol Hill or making, making a speech somewhere, I'll really be going to the mat for the working families. Drill American oil, get water on the farms, bring affordability back, bring opportunity back for working families. You know, I'm on a, I call it the abundance and opportunity agenda. We want to talk yes. about abundance yes. and opportunity for people. That's great. And it's those are themes that we talk about here the whole time, because what you're getting, particularly in California, and our focus here on this show is California, but the, the, you know, as, as we, we say all the time, you know, they often with the left, what starts here in California it spreads nationwide. So we're, we're like a sort of early warning system for the craziness. It's, it's, and, and, and they've got this mentality of scarcity that they've got to squeeze you, and, and it's driven by ideology. That's exactly and it. And it hurts the people who can, who can afford it the least. They're the ones who can afford this, the consequences of that the least. Exactly. We are going to strip the morality from scarcity. That's what a few of us are talking about back here in Washington, D.C. When we talk to these agencies, when we talk to these witnesses at the hearings and natural resources, agriculture, and transportation infrastructure, all the building blocks of abundance are in my committees. We talk about stripping the morality from scarcity because the, the eco crowd has made this morality around yeah. scarcity. They've got their, their kind of coastal urban elite you know, stigma that they think it's okay to raise the price of gas. It's okay to make food more scarce. It's okay to limit opportunity and jobs. No, we're to take the, we are going to strip that morality from scarcity and we're going to strip it from dependence. And we're going to talk about abundance Fantastic. and opportunity. Very, and, very and clear we're and strong. Ground on that. Can I just, before we get to the details of the, especially the water stuff and, and the impact on farming, uh, just remind us, how much did you win by in the end? 560 votes. That's all it took. <laughs> amazing. Wait, <laughs> 2%, was, I think. It was very, very close. Very, very good. But, you know, it's an amazing result because, you, as you said, you, you weren't expected to win it. That was supposed to be a safe Democrat seat. Yeah. And and we just knocked on doors. I And I pick my own neighborhoods that are, you know, always kind of guide my campaign guys to give me the right walk books. I wanted, I call them aspirational neighborhoods. It's smaller homes, not real high-end um, neighborhoods in the in the best parts of town. But you can see the lawns are mowed, the yes. you know, the cars are clean, the families are doing what they can do to get their American dream. And um, yes. and, and when you knock on their doors and you talk about things that make sense to them, drill American oil, get water in the farms, get the cost of living under control, create more jobs and opportunity, these are the neighborhoods where the families respond to that message. That's right. Well, that is the, and I talk about it in the context of the California dream. I've been talking, thinking about and working on a lot a, a, a lot recently on housing um and and you know the california dream as as we understand it and i understand it as someone who from a, before we moved here over 10 years ago i admired california so much it was an inspiration to me 
that idea of, you know, you come to California and you can get your plot of land and build your home or own your home. You know, that affordable, plentiful housing is in many ways the foundation of the California dream. And that's what they're taking away, as well as all the other things that make that possible. And that's tightly related to water. A lot of times us farmers will talk about water and food and food scarcity and, hey, we got to have water for food and farming. Very true. But food is actually more portable than housing. When California doesn't build the necessary water infrastructure we need to supply mm -hmm. growth, we, we raise the cost of housing and housing access for working families and young families disappears. So it's almost more critical for housing than food that California gets its act together. You can't build homes in California unless you can prove a 50-year supply of water, which makes sense. What doesn't make sense and, is that can, we Can I just ask you, that, that's water. a really interesting piece of information. So is that a... Um, is that a law? Is that in the zoning guideline? Where, where sure. does that come and from? And it's common sense law. You shouldn't course, build houses unless you can provide water. So what's important is that we build the water infrastructure we need to manage the growth. So there's that's the, so a 50-year supply of water is required. Okay. Let's go. Uh, take us through your analysis because we got time here. It's not like TV mm -hmm. where it's all just over so quickly. You can barely sure, that's believe all. it. Um, just take us through uh, with from your expert perspective you know, what's gone wrong in terms of water and, and sketch out what a solution would look like? So there's really two big pieces of a water solution in California. One is how we manage the infrastructure and the assets and the resources we have. And the other part of the solution is how we build assets and resources to, uh, to have the infrastructure we need for growth um, and combine that with management. So let's talk about the, the, the infrastructure first. So we were at a water hearing last week and we had all the, the big state and federal water agency leads down there, and they're frustrated. They want to build re build reservoirs. They want to build conveyance. And I asked them in that in that um, conversation, what are your dream projects? Raise Shasta Dam, build Temperance Flat, build sites, raise San Luis Reservoir. These are the big dams in California that we could easily either put redundant bigger dams behind, or we could just raise the dam itself and, and increase capacity by millions of acre feet. So to do these projects, it would cost about $12 billion. Now, staggering. I don't have $12 billion. But we remember then that California has a $3.6 trillion annual GDP. So the yes. state of California alone has $3.6 trillion in economic output every year. Yeah. And $12 billion is... I was going to say, $12 billion is not that much. I mean, one the, amount, the amount of money that's thrown around. Yeah. Yeah, come on. Sorry, I interrupted right. you. The, the, but, go back. But no, your point, exactly. It's one-third of 1% 1 of one year's GDP in California mm -hmm. to build 50 years' worth of water abundance and in infrastructure. Wow. And so those are the projects. So that list there, sorry, that, that $12 billion figure is the is the cost of the wish list of the of who the water the water agencies state and federal water, water agencies agency. so these are these are not kind of um as you would say i mean i'm just i'm just using the language of the of the democrats when they talk about this where they say oh, well it's the farmers stealing all our water you know that you hear that the whole time and i would say yes yeah stealing our water to grow our food i mean you know but still it's this isn't coming from a kind of lobbyist this is from the water agencies exactly and, and this, remember, farmers use the water every year they can use it. So we help build these, these infrastructures. We take irrigation contracts. We pay hundreds of dollars an acre foot for water that fits in our economic model to produce food. But when there's a drought, the farmers are the first ones to get cut. 
and we go to our groundwater wells and we go to our other uses of water or we rotate out some crops for a year or two and we focus on keeping our our permanent crops our trees and vines alive and we don't grow wheat and alfalfa and other things mm-hmm. that can be turned off that year tomatoes and so farmers are kind of the throttle and the base demand for these this water infrastructure and and oftentimes we can go to groundwater sustainably when we've got the water infrastructure in place to have surface water nine out of ten years eight out of ten years so farm and and with the amount of water infrastructure we're talking about we're really not looking at scarcity and we're really not looking at that big a bill to build it again one third of one percent yes of a single year's gdp for 50 years in infrastructure california's gdp would grow an additional one percent a year if we had the housing that's an amazing, I hadn't heard that 12 billion number before. Thank you for that. I mean, one of the, can I just ask you about the groundwater and so on? Because one of the points that you here made is that because the farmers are going to the groundwater more and more, this is the, I mean, tell me if this is true or not, that the ground, you, you, the groundwater is really being depleted and you're getting subsidence and it's having all sorts of negative um, consequences because too much groundwater is being taken out. That is greatly true. I take, you know, you can put that in the, the true set of facts. In, in places, not everywhere, in the best groundwater program, if you don't want the groundwater depleted, if you don't want subsidence, if you don't want these issues, salt intrusion from the ocean, mm-hmm. all of these issues are real issues, let's build the surface water resources, capture yes. the water in wet years, and manage those surface water resources sensibly, and we can have abundant water, and the groundwater then becomes the savings account. That we go and yet to you can recharge need. it. I mean, that, there, there are projects to recharge the groundwater. Exactly. And if you don't exhaust it and you have surface water to recharge it with in wet years and you manage those resources properly, we can have sustainable groundwater in California and have a food, food system that thrives and have affordable housing and have the opportunities and affordability that come with all that. Right. Can I ask you about, the, again, something that I hear a lot, um, and I'm sure you'll know the details, that actually bond a bond measure was passed a few years ago to build i don't think as much as this in terms of infrastructure water infrastructure and it was never built it was top one it was passed overwhelmingly as have 50 billion dollars in additional bonds since the 1970s when we kept building major infrastructure it was a 7.45 billion dollar water bond that was passed at the state level to provide for for resources to build the infrastructure now in Mm -hmm. addition to those resources You'd have local irrigation districts, um, cities, municipalities, all participating with additional resources to build build the reservoirs, build the water, the dams, the, the conveyance systems. It's never been spent on any major project since it's sitting there. We can't get through NEPA. We can't get through the lawsuits. We can't get through the environmental regs to actually build water infrastructure with money. Again, going back, not that is much. That money, it's already is that money... There sitting in a bank account or does it need to be issued in the bonds it's a it's a, 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 a ability to issue the bonds. it's ability to issue so i'm, I'm yeah. sure they haven't begun paying interest on it yet but it's it's authorized it's, it's available it's authorized and, yeah and the residents of california have time and time again supported funding for water infrastructure and so that was what year was prop, prop one 2014. Oh, it's so frustrating and so the again the and the people who are bringing the lawsuits who who is that i mean when it's something like NEPA, is that another part of the government well these are suing you, another- i call them the protest industry they're they're part of the greater group i call the lords of scarcity and right. these are people who simply like 
to see anti-human policies push working families to the edge of privation. Um, they think it's moral. Again, I said earlier, we're going to strip the morality from scarcity. There mm. are people here in California, and be careful they don't expand on us, that believe that scarcity is moral. They make up the CO2 carbon hysteria. They, they tell us the climate's going to change only because of anthropogenic impacts. They stop us from drilling oil and delivering affordability. You know, without, a, without oil exploration, we don't just give up gas in our car and kilowatts. We give up plastics. We give up fertilizers, paints. Our manufacturing base cannot sustain without energy exploration and petroleum exploration here in America. We give up the, the basic resource industries, and we give up the entire economy built upon them. Do you have oil? And can I ask? Do you, I'm, I'm sorry, I should know this, but do you have Kern County? I don't. I'm north of Kern County. You're no, north of that, yeah, exactly. Because that's a, I mean, that I mean, I remember, you know, Vince Fong, who's represents in the state legislature. I yep. mean, he really educated me on the absolute enormity of the industry potential industry there. Very large, and part um, of that is up in my district. Got to shout out Colinga, California, a big oil producing town in in my district up in Fresno County. It's amazing. And the thing that I, I again, the fact that I, I recently learned when, I, you know, because of the, some of the points you make, it's not as if they, the, the, the worst of it is that they're not, it's totally incoherent because they're not actually ending the use of fossil fuels. What they're actually doing is importing more of it. So the share of the fossil fuels we still use in California, I, I looked at the numbers from 2000, in the last 20 years, when 20 years ago is 12%, one, two, 12%. It's now 50%, five, zero imports while we could be getting it from california it's absolutely infuriating can we get back to the water though i think that's it. so the 12 billion that let what would that look like because people some people might hear that and think oh you're going to concrete over and you know a beautiful you know valley in yosemite or something like that yep. what, what's what would that look like well when you, if you're ever flying from san francisco to colorado or san francisco sacramento san jose oakland flying over the Sierra Nevadas, look down. You're going to see reservoirs. In the mountain canyons, you're going to see large yes. reservoirs that have been built, and there's there's plenty more sites to build those types of reservoirs. Now, if you believe that this big lake in a canyon, among many canyons, is an environmental catastrophe with all the wildlife and fish that it supports there in the lake and the recreation, as well as the water resources that are supporting hundreds of thousands of acres of, of irrigated landscapes below it throughout California, and the hydroelectric power it's generating. If you believe that's an uh, environmental disaster, well then, then that's your frame of mind. I look at those reservoirs up in the mountains and say, wow, that's a big open bag of potato chips. That's just delicious and I want more. I mean, that is, you know, those are good things. Those are things that we brag about back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Hey, look at these wonderful reservoirs that provide irrigated landscapes, that provide affordable housing, that provide practically free energy and electricity for Californians that provide all this beautiful lake habitat, fish, recreation, campsites yep. for families. If that's somebody's problem, then then we should have an open debate about it. Yeah. And the thing is, those, those um, uh, hilariously, I, again, when you, when you actually look in the details of how this shows their mindset, the, the hydroelectric power is not classified as renewable. No, they don't get credits. It's amazing when you look at the list of renewable. They, it's it, uh, if it's not wind and solar, they don't want to know. I mean, it's just completely ex so extreme. Um, is there anywhere people can go and look at? I mean, the twelve billion, you know, wish list. Is there anywhere that people who are interested in following up could go and look at that or, or see what the projects would be? I I haven't produced that. I just interviewed my 
my guys there, but we could produce a list of infrastructure priorities in California and what, what their estimated costs currently are. And I was telling the guys to, to dream big, round up, and then give me an inflated number. And we barely got to 12 billion. Amazing. It's really, I mean, I know, you know, having worked in government myself, I mean, and then you look at the, the, the sums of money that are being thrown around these days. You know, the- 30 tr- billion tr- dollars in unemployment fraud alone. Right. That's in California. Right. Exactly. Just during COVID. I mean, it, and it's not being investigated. Um, it's, ama- it's an amazing, it's, it's such a great point. Well, look, train, I ask- 120 billion. Oh, well, that, yeah, that's a whole- <laughs> yeah, I, I can think of a lot of good uses for that money. What about the? Um, can I turn to the 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 um, what's going on? You know, bring it up to date in terms of the Central Valley and farming, because there's more and more stories appearing of both the the. And I'd love you to connect it to this conversation about water. Um, the of, first of all, because of all this, you know, rainfall that we've had this year, and snowfall in the Sierras, um, the accumulation. So already the flooding. Uh, the reemergence of Tulare Lake, for example, that's attracted a lot of attention. Um, but really, the 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 what they they call it a sort of you know ticking time bomb in the in the Sierras with the snow that's going to melt, and what you're looking at in terms of impacts, people are saying we're not going to have you know whole you know crops will be unavailable this year because so much farmland will be affected etc etc what are you what are you anticipating? Well, I can tell you what's already happened is there's two really two big pieces three big pieces of, of flood control. One is how much how much precipitation snow do you have and when's it going to come? Another big piece is what is your catchment? How many reservoirs do you have? Mm-hmm. How much flood control space do you have? And then the third is channel flow. How can, how fast can you safely get rid of it in the rivers and creeks right. and the delta out into the ocean? Then then we're all safe. So we, we've already talked about we haven't built the catchment. Our, our levees and rivers are in a state of ill repair. I, I represent a town in Merced County called Planada. Planada was flooded out five years ago. A levee broke. Um, the town was flooded. This is a lot of working families, a lot of farm workers flooded. The school was flooded out. Kids couldn't go to school. They got money. Jim Costa, Democrat congressman who represented this area prior to me, got them money from the, from the federal government mm-hmm. to repair, improve the levee, and dredge the creek, Miles Creek. They couldn't spend it. The Army Corps of Engineers wouldn't give them a permit. The Fish and Wildlife wouldn't give them a permit. They never got the work done other than repairing the levee to actually clean the silt out of the bottom, clean the vegetation out of the bottom, and and reinforce the levee adequately to protect the town. They just broke that same levee again, flooded the same school, the same families, same homes out again five years later while the money sat in a bank account. Because It's it's so infuriating to hear that. So so this now throughout the entire—and this is a small creek— up on the eastern edge of the county, not in the floodplain. This is up on the benchland. Now we're looking at a whole valley with the same situation. Our our catchment's not there. Our precipitation's enormous. We have no control over that. And our channel flow is completely silted over, completely vegetated over. The city of Madera cleaned their river. They kind of just bootlegged and did it. They found four bodies. They chased out a whole bunch of homeless people that were d- dealing fentanyl in town. And they, they cleaned up the river flow at Madera, to get, they had a fire start in the in the river with so much vegetation that it spread and destroyed two homes and and burnt six others. So just to protect their homes from you know what is a a river bottom forest fire, <laughs> if you Amazing. can imagine the ill repair that takes, um, they did it themselves. Now the entire Central Valley from Kern County all the way up through the Delta is one drainage system, same as from Sacramento, Redding, Red Bluff, all the way mm-hmm. down through Sacramento Delta is another drainage system. 
they're all clogged up. They're all silted up. There's been no uh, um, maintenance uh, channel channel improvements and maintenance for decades. Now, after the flooding we've already had this year, there's more silt sitting in those river bottoms than there was um, prior to the flooding. That's where heavy amounts of silt come in is during big flood events. Mm -hmm. So now we've got very, very, very clogged up um, flow channels. And I'm, I'm working with several congressmen here, including uh, Speaker McCarthy, to get mm -hmm. a $200 million authorization and to get a categorical exemption under NEPA to get, these, to get these channels opened up this spring as much as possible. We could easily, here's irony for you, we finally got a wet year. After three years of drought, yeah. a lot of intermittent droughts in the last decade, we got a wet year, a big one. If we don't clean up this channel flow, we could easily be in a situation this next summer where the Bureau of Reclamation, the Army Corps of Engineers, are telling us that we've got to release our water into these into the ocean, out of our dams, so that we can use a bigger volume of the catchment we do have in place for flood control. Because their flood control flow is is way, way below what they modeled it at in their flood control manuals. So we could actually finish one of the wettest years in history with the aid, the government agencies who failed to build the reservoirs, who failed to maintain the channels, telling us in the irrigation districts, the municipalities, the environmental groups that want to sustain habitat, which includes me, um, that we have to put more water into the ocean and hold less back in our, in our dams because we don't have the flood control capacity that we had 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, unbelievable. What a, I mean, awful, but brilliantly clear summary i just want to ask because you mentioned a lot of organizations and i not in a spirit of you know blaming anyone but just just so that people understand where accountability lies because it seems to me you have so many different agencies and groups involved here so you've got i mean who is responsible for the lack of maintenance over the past you said decades i mean who should have done that work well, who should have led like that process service. It ultimately is the one obstructing. But the Army Corps of Engineers has the prime lead agency role in maintaining these flood control channels, these discharge channels. So if the Fish and Wildlife, you know, interferes with them issuing the permits they need to issue, they need to they need to escalate it and fulfill their fulfill their responsibilities. They are ultimately the folks that are in charge of making sure we have flood control in the Central Valley throughout the country. That's what the Army Corps of Engineers does. And so instead, I don't know if you know, but in the past, the Army Corps of Engineers spent a huge amount of resource prosecuting me in 2014, 15, 16, 17 for planting wheat in a wheat field. Um, but, like, but, but they wait, it's, haven't it's, been spending this last decade cleaning the river channels and managing flood control. But is this federal? Camps. I mean, is this fed, are these federal? I mean, are you saying that the responsibility for flood control in California is actually federal? Yes. Greatly. David Valadeo is joining us here. Um, he may he may have a he, he's been in Congress longer than I have. He probably has some some resolution on these issues. Yeah, no, no. We'll I mean we, we're going to do them as sep just so that you're oh, aware. We, we'll chop this. We, we'll do it. We'll have separate conversations. But nice to see you, David. Thank you. Sorry, we're running a bit over, aren't we? Um, but I just wanted to go back, um, John, to the to the other bit of it that we, that we didn't talk about, and I'd love your perspective on that, which is. Well, you've talked about it a bit, which is the maintenance, right? Um, when you talk about the, we talked about the new infrastructure, the management of the assets that we have. So one aspect of that, I guess, is the maintenance of the channels. But the other kind of part of this story that we hear about um, 
is the you know particularly the delta um and the your preoccupation with salmon and the delta smelt and yes. all of that and the management so tell us your perspective on that um in terms of the management of what we've already got the inad- the inadequate infrastructure that we have well the the infrastructure is inadequate for the for the environmental goals the farm community the municipalities we don't have adequate infrastructure for a lot of reasons but really the biggest um fault in the in the species management the habitat is we keep using water as a sole resource to improve species recovery. If you want to recover salmon, you need water. We, we'd all understand that. But you also need uh, predator management. We've got non-native bass species throughout the delta that are just eating all the small salmon. Um, what, if what you, spe- did you say bat? Yeah, non-native bass that we've planted in the, da- oh, in the bass, delta. I'm sorry, I thought you said bat. I couldn't quite and, hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, non-native we we bass. have fishing yeah. limits on them. We have seasons on them. We should unleash anglers to catch all the bass species possible out of the delta. Then on, beyond that, we've got the Marine Mammals Protection Act, which protects all the seals that like to sit on the rocks right outside the Golden Gate Bridge and eat big salmon. So we, we're taking out the big ones, we're taking out the small ones. Then there's other things we're doing, like floodplain restorations that are really promising, where we can take some of the bench lands along the rivers, we, mm-hmm. can, we can flood them up a bit with weirs, hopefully, not just with extraordinarily high water flows, and let, this, let the salmon fry, the little hatchlings, mm-hmm. size up from the size of your thumb to eight or 10 inches long, and then go back into the delta where hopefully a number of them can outrun the predators. Um, so there are there are things we can do for the species to improve the species, especially the salmon. We know how to do them. We're not being allowed to do them. All we're allowed to See do that. is flush water out to the ocean while the, the species haven't recovered in 40 years of, of devastating water flows out to the ocean. You I know mean, what? You see, that's why I love talking to you know people who know what they're talking about because... You never hear about that, and we, you know, they've just stopped the salmon fishing for the for the season, haven't they? So that affects far- farming of a different kind. The fish, the fishing communities, that's not good for them. But it's all the as you say, all you ever hear about is oh, it's because 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 the farmers in the Central Valley are taking too much of the water. That's the conversation that you typically hear. Yeah, it's an unfair accusation, and they like a villain. But the villains are really again the lords of scarcity. They're the people. The agencies, the activist organizations that would rather have a problem and an enemy than just work together and, and find these kind of constructive solutions. And and there's some really good legislation out there that is going to help some of this. We, we can do better, and it's not that hard to do better. We're pretty clever humans when we really want to solve a problem and, and cooperate to do it. Hmm. I've got one last question because I, I don't I, – I, I, I've heard about them – so much over the years, I I've realized I don't really know anything about how the, who they are and how they work. The Army Corps of Engineers. So earlier, you said that they were among the people blocking some of the necessary infrastructure. The, from the water bond, I think you said, is that correct? And and so what, how can they, I mean, when I, I pictured the Army Corps of Engineers, a bunch of sort of great people who go in and sort of build things quickly, and they're amazing, and because you, you have an association with the Army, which is, you know, for me, positive. But they sound slightly different to that from what you're uh, describing. Well, yeah, they're an enforcement agency, and they have jurisdiction over the waters and harbors of the United States. And it used to be a, a military priority to make sure we could flow assets down the rivers and, and have connectivity. Mm-hmm. Same reason we built the internet, interstate highway system to move military assets around. That was the pretense back during the post-war era. And so the Army Corps of Engineers is there to maintain our rivers, our flow channels. They'll regulate how high a bridge has to be so boats can go under it. They'll, they'll regulate how deep they dredge a channel or maintain the Mississippi River to make sure that, that um, barge traffic and 
and you know assets can move up and down the Mississippi River. They have jurisdiction over our waterways in the United States, and it's probably not a bad thing they do. They just do a bad job of it. Um, and so when you want to obstruct a waterway, when you want to change a channel flow, um, take a water diversion, it's got to go through them. But they're not the only agency. I, another thing that we're working on right now is you know, Fish and Wildlife Service has a broad, a broad authority over terrestrial and rivers and lakes wildlife, except when it comes to salmon. So this was Ken Calvert's Fish Act. He wants to take the authority over, over governing how we deal with salmon from NOAA, which is the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, which only cares about ocean-going fish and doesn't have any responsibilities over habitat on land or rivers and lakes. So given that they're responsible for salmon restoration, they don't care about irrigated landscapes and agriculture. They don't mm -hmm. care about habitat on land. They don't care about ducks and flyways. All they care about is ocean-going fish, and the only ocean-going fish that relies on our river flows are Andronous fish or salmon and trout, and mainly salmon. So we want to, you know, one effort underway right now that we had the hearing on last week was to just say, hey, why don't we give recovery of the salmon to somebody who can look at more of a conjunctive um, habitat preservation and yes. not just focus myopically on adding water to the salmon? It's so interesting. And it just reveals, doesn't it, the kind of, you know, the, the complexity of government and the bureaucracy when it just develops over the years and just totally gets in the way of, get, of getting things done. Um, John, we have to leave it there. Just one, one thing I'll note, it's very, this, whole, this water conversation is so important. We had a really great conversation a few weeks ago with a lady called Erica Guise, who is um, an advocate of what she calls slow water. And one of the things I like is the idea that we can sort of marry these, you know, she's pretty opposed to the infrastructure aspect of it, and, and a lot of people disagree with that. However, you mentioned floodplains, you know, that for her, that's an example of, of a more natural way to think about uh, capturing and storing water. And I think there's, you know, as, as you've shown, you know, there's, there's, there's room for both. You know, we need to be thinking about it in the round. Um, so I thought that was really interesting what you had to say about floodplains. Well, if we want to be a land of opportunity here in California for 50 or 40 million Californians, we have to, we have to supply them with, with the water resources, among other things, that they need to thrive. Yeah. And, and we're not doing that, and, and we can't do it a tablespoon at a time. We're going to need some infrastructure, and we're going to need to manage the infrastructure wisely. Well, I mean, it sounds so sensible. You can't believe that it hasn't been done. But there you go. That's why we need people um, with the right ideas coming into politics. Very glad you did. Very glad you won your race. And so happy that you could join us today. Thank you, John. Thanks, Steve. Good to be here. Really appreciate you. You see, I told you you'd be well informed. I certainly feel very well informed um, from those conversations. That's what I love about um, being able to do this show and really getting into these issues that we talk about all the time. We see it in the news in in the headlines and so on but you really need to understand it and and as i often say now the the more you know about these problems in california the worse they seem because the the way that this state has been mismanaged and taken in the wrong direction for so long is just such a crying shame um, but part of the process of putting it right is to understand what's gone wrong and we try and do all that here on this show so please do follow us on apple spotify youtube wherever you get your podcasts uh, tell everyone about the steve hilton show and we'll see you back here soon for the next episode